This is Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 28. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hope for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Jesus, King of kings, you are majestic in all of your ways. You are great, and you make that greatness known to your creation. God, thank you that there is hope for us that there is hope for us in Jesus. And so we want to place our hope in you tonight, no matter where we are, knowing that there are many of us who are just coming and going. But Lord, all of us, we're we're desperate for hope. And we can find our hope in you. So God, thank you that your greatness has been made known to us and that we can have our hope in you. And even where we fall short, where we just don't know what to cry out for as we should, we have the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us, who groans on our behalf when we just don't have the words to say. God, thank you. Would you be present with us tonight as we look to worship you in spirit and in truth as we are accustomed to doing week in and week out for you are worthy and you'll always be worthy of our worship. God bless us tonight as we just continue to seek your face, to know you, to make you known, to know you all the more so we can love you all the more. We pray in Jesus name, amen. The last decade of my life can be marked by a singular focus. Be a student of the Bible. Be a student of the Bible. That has been a consistent theme of my life as a Christian over the last 10 or so years. Uh, I never want to stop learning from the Word of God. And in that time of 10 years, I've read through the Bible in all kinds of different ways. I've done chronological Bible studies. Uh, I've done seminary assignments. Uh, I've done a slow crawl through different books of the Bible, and on and on. But bar none, the the best method I have found for studying the Bible is what's called the inductive Bible study method. The inductive Bible study method. I was looking at kind of who kind of described that really well, and I found this on the uh, navigators.org webpage. They say this, this method makes observations on a passage of scripture and then draws conclusions based on those observations. The following steps follow the inductive methods process of observation, interpretation, and application. What I'd like to do for my last sermon delivered to the young adults of Bellevue Baptist Church is give you a vital tool for studying the word of God yourself. And I want to model this tool for you using a text that the Lord gave me for this ministry about two and a half years ago. Remarkably, it is the same exact passage that Brother Steve looked at this past Sunday. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
he was looking at it on the occasion of Mother's Day. Uh, we're going to look to see how can we apply this text specifically to young adults. And as you're flipping there, I want to give you context to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you were in the worship service on Sunday, you've heard this text and learned a bit of what's going on. But for those who haven't, uh, here's some of the context. The nation of Israel is coming out of a difficult time in history. It was uh, a time in which everyone was doing what they thought was right at the time because there was no king in Israel. Um, they had no king. They had what was called what were called judges. Uh, if you were here when you uh, heard Ozzy preach on Gideon, uh, he told you about judges and how they were primarily military leaders who uh, the Lord would use to give his people victory after a time of sin and rebellion. He would deliver his people when they repented, and he would use judges, military leaders, to do so. But the last judge over Israel was not a military leader, however. He was a prophet. You see, the Lord was doing a new thing by raising up a man of God named Samuel to initiate a new era in Israel's history. He would go on to anoint the first two kings of Israel, the first being Saul and then the second, David. As the details of this history were being recorded by someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he decided to begin right here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And so what I want to do is just read this text uh, all at once, all 28 verses, and then glean from it using the inductive Bible study method. So let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Aphrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him 
to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Then uh, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good to us to show us from your word what you have for us in this life and the life to come. God, I pray that you would equip us with what is going on in this text so that we can apply it properly to our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, to glean from your word that which you would have for us to glean from it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, tonight's sermon title is Open-Handed with the Lord. Open-Handed with the Lord. Uh, and our, our three points are basically going to be the steps of that inductive Bible study, uh, observation, interpretation, application. And so uh, our, our first uh, point here tonight is, is the observation portion. Observation. Uh, what are we trying to accomplish when we come to the Bible and simply try to observe it? Well, by observation, and this is where journaling can actually be very helpful as we're studying the Bible. Obs observation, you want to write out simple obvious statements of what you see in the text 
that do not require interpretation. Interpretation is step two. So we, we just want to right now, just write down some simple, obvious observations we see in the text. Just very obvious statements. So I want to give you some examples of what I see here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 of things we could observe. As we write out simple, obvious statements of what we see in the text that do not require interpretation, one, very quickly, Elkanah practices polygamy. He has two wives, right? One, Hannah, one, or the other, Peninnah. Another observation, Hannah was barren. She had no children is what the text tells us. And we could safely assume that there's a pattern here, right? It's not that they've just been trying for three months and, you know, nothing's come of that. This is a repeated pattern that there's been an expectation and met with disappointment. She is barren. Then Elkanah loved Hannah. The text was very clear about that. Told us Elkanah loved Hannah, that he, he encouraged her in the faith. Right? It tells us that he gave a double portion for her to sacrifice and to offer, that he's encouraging her faith to Yahweh, which leads us to another observation. It's the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who is credited with closing her womb. Twice it, it says that. Hannah's rival, Peninnah, discouraged her faith. It tells us that she irritated uh, Hannah. Right? Very simple observations, very simple statements. You may say, well, what's the point in this? Why can't we just jump to interpretation? I see all these things. It helps to slow down in this process to just note very simple observations so that you can see the bigger picture later, that you don't miss anything, that you can miss something by trying to blow past your Bible study here. So when you slow down, you start to see things as they actually are rather than the things that you just want to notice very quickly. So in continuing to keep going, we, we could just note an observation out of verse 10 of, of the description it gives us of Hannah's distress. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord Yahweh and wept bitterly. Another one, Hannah addresses her prayer to Yahweh, specifically calling him the Lord of hosts. That will, that will come into play later in our interpretation. But for right now, we just want to mark, that's an interesting phrase, the Lord of hosts. We don't see that very often. She vows to the Lord that if she is granted her petition, she will give her son to the Lord. It's verse 11. Verse 16, Hannah admits her anxiety and vexation to the Lord. And then finally, verse 23, Elkanah supported his wife's vow and sacrificial decision. You got to think, uh, Samuel is Elkanah's son too. So it's important to note that El Elkanah's on board with this vow, with this petition. We could make even more observations. Uh, this is not a comprehensive list of observations from 1 Samuel chapter 1, giving you examples of things you would note as, as you go. And now we want to go to interpretation. Interpretation. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish when we enter step two? After we've noted a lot of observations in, in the chapter, in the passage, we want to move on to interpretation. And for interpretation, we're trying to craft 
a main idea that you think the original author is trying to convey in the passage. You want to craft a main idea that you think the author, the original author, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to convey in the passage. Uh, it's what we call authorial intent. What does the author intend to convey to his original audience? And then we're going to craft a main idea based on that. But before we can craft a main idea, we have to find the author's main point. What, what did he mean to convey to the original audience? And so I want to give you some examples of, of what we might uh, try to, uh, in attempting to interpret, what might we write down? What, what, what might we notice? Uh, and walk through that together. Uh, is it that he's trying to show the dangers of practicing polygamy? Not quite. I don't think that's the author's original intent, right? He doesn't condone it. He doesn't condemn it either. Now, we can know from other parts of the Bible that polygamy is not good. It, it is wrong. And we could confirm that with other scripture, but if we're not careful, we'll just read that into the text when that's not his main point. Is it to show how to wrestle with barrenness? Again, there's a lot we can learn here about what it's like to struggle with disappointment when you desperately desire a child. But that's not the main point that the author is trying to convey. It's, it's helpful, it's beneficial, but not his main point. Is he trying to show a lesson to husbands to know what not to say, right? Learning from Elkanah. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Not, not a great idea. Not a, not a great way to comfort your wife. But again, that's something we can profit from, but not his main point. Is it to show the importance of being raw and honest with the Lord? Okay, that, there's a great deal of that in the text. And I think we're getting closer and closer. But again, I don't think that that's the author's main point. All of these may be true to some extent, but they fail to arrive at what the author is trying to accomplish in recording this seemingly small event in a family's life and their history. And so I'd submit to you just what I see plainly in the text as the author's main point is this. The Lord answered a barren woman's prayer by approving her petition for a child. As plainly as I can sum it up, I think that's what the original author is conveying to the original audience. The Lord answered a barren woman's prayer by approving her petition for a child. Wouldn't you agree that when we take a step back and see the wide angle view of 1 Samuel 1, that this is a clear statement of what the author is trying to convey? Great. Now, here's where the fun begins. Because most of you are not barren women. And there may be some conflict there, like, how does this apply to me? But this text has something to say to you right where you are. We just have to interpret, interpret it properly. We now have to ask questions of the text and find some answers. So, for instance, why did Hannah pray to the Lord? Specifically, why did she call him the Lord of hosts. And, and as you're studying the Bible, it'd be helpful to have a, a, a study Bible that has footnotes in the bottom so that when that phrase, Lord of hosts, shows up, you can go to see what exactly does that mean, right? You may think hosts, okay, hosting, like having people over, like what is that? But 
you dive in and you find that it's that he's the Lord of numberlessness, of plentifulness. He's the Lord of abundance. A barren woman is going to her covenant God, asking him to produce life out of an abundance of who he is. Isn't that beautiful? Why was she in such distress? Why did Eli think she was drunk? These are other questions we could ask of our observations. Well, we know there was an enormous pressure on her to have a child. That was well known in those days and still is even to this day to some extent. There's probably fear and hurt over missing out on the joy of being a parent or a lack of purpose, knowing that she is designed to bear children and and not living in that purpose. There's hurt there. And so she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. And that likely didn't happen very often at the house of the Lord during that time. Remember what kind of time it was like. People did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't really regard the Lord. And here she is, probably on an off day at at the temple there in Shiloh, just weeping bitterly, mouthing the the words of her heart. And Eli looks at her and says, why are you drunk? He he doesn't have a frame of reference for what's going on. She's showing her devotion to the Lord. Why did the Lord grant her vow, her petition? Well, because she vowed to give her son back to him. She was open-handed in her request. Lord, if you give me a son, I receive him. I will give him back to you. At no point were her hands closed in that transaction. She remained open-handed in this vow. When we add up the answers to our questions and keep it in line with the author's main point, we can arrive at a main idea for our lives today. And so here's my best attempt at a main idea, something that we can take and live out. God is willing and able to produce new life where only he can, if only we would remain open-handed in our request. God is willing. He is a God who gives life as our creator and sustainer. We know that's his character. He's willing. He is able. He is powerful. He is strong. That there's a long line in his history with his people of the practice of opening up wombs to produce life, culminating in the event of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's able. He is willing and able to produce new life where only he can, if only we would be open-handed, remain open-handed in our request. This is the main idea I came up with in my study of the Bible using the same exact process on January 4th, 2021. It's about two and a half years ago. I read in my quality time with the Lord that day, I read about a barren woman who poured out her soul to the Lord of hosts, asking him to provide her with a child. That he was the Lord of 
plentifulness, of numberlessness, of abundance. And he showed her that he is willing to produce life where only he can. And upon looking at the condition of the young adults ministry at that time, I noted a few things. You see, uh, I had just celebrated that point one full year of pastoral ministry in the young adults. Uh, I was hired on January 2nd, 2020, which you know is the year of COVID pandemic. And a full year had gone by and I had noticed the Lord do a refining in his church. And I had also seen him, there was a dwindling that had taken place. And I didn't know where we stood. It was a hard winter that year. We still weren't in life groups in the room at that point. And so I'm looking at the condition of our ministry and my plea before the Lord of hosts was for him to produce life, new life in our ministry. Just as Hannah approached the altar to offer her sacrifices to the Lord with open hands, I too made a request with open hands. If I want to see God produce new life in this ministry, I have to be willing to sacrifice the ministry at his altar and give him glory for whatever comes. I saw that God is willing and able, but am I? Am I willing and able to remain open-handed? Well, that morning on January 4th, 2021, I said, yes. God, if you produce life in this ministry in a way that only you can, I'll give the glory back to you. You can have the glory, the credit, the honor, the praise. That's how the main point, the main idea uh, applied to me. And that brings us to our third step in the inductive uh, Bible study method, application. What are we trying to do in application? We want to assess where the main idea can be implemented into our own lives in a variety of ways. Assess where the main idea can be implemented into your own life in a variety of of ways, knowing that the text is going to apply differently to the different people in this room with different backgrounds, with different things that are going on in your life. How is it going to apply to you? How can you personally implement the main idea into your life? If our main idea is that God is willing and able to produce new life where only he can, if only we would remain open-handed with that request, then where can we apply that to our lives? This requires more questions, but instead of asking questions of the text, we now have to ask questions of ourselves. I think one question that is a good question to start with is, where do you want to see the Lord produce new life in you? Where do you want to see the Lord produce new life in you? And if you have a hard time answering that question, look at your life and, and ask, where do I see death? Where do I see brokenness? Disappointment? Because that might clue you in. 
of where you might want to see the Lord produce new life in you. Maybe it's, maybe it's in salvation. There's got to be a sum of you who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and so you are spiritually dead. You want to see the Lord produce new life in you? Let's start with your soul, knowing that you have a spiritual destination. It's either heaven or hell. Let's ask the Lord to produce new life in you for the sake of your soul, your everlasting soul. But for most of you, you're you're saved. Jesus is Lord, Lord of your life, but maybe you're lacking in your relationship with him, and you know it. You want to see him breathe new life into that relationship. Maybe it's not a relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's a relationship with family or friends. You're struggling with those relationships. Ask him to breathe new life into those relationships. Maybe it's in your work. Work is hard right now. It's not as fun as it used to be to be in the career field, right, of your choice. And so you're asking the Lord, produce new life in me by way of energy and enthusiasm. Okay. Maybe it's in your spiritual disciplines. Maybe this is a huge help to you because scripture reading is not something that you're actively doing right now. Ask the Lord to breathe new life into you. Prayer, fasting, journaling. And maybe it's your purpose, your plan, or your path. You're just aimlessly wandering about, and you just have no clue what's going on, what you're doing. Ask the Lord to breathe life into that area of your life. But here's the condition. You have to be open-handed with it. You have to remain open-handed with it. So that requires more questions. How can I remain open-handed with you in this area of my life? Right? Going to the Lord in prayer. Or where am I starting to grip and cling to what I've requested? And how can I entrust this request to the Lord yet again? I think about the end of our passage of 1 Samuel 1, of Hannah, where she doesn't go up to worship with the family like she's used to doing. And so she's saying, I'm going to wean Samuel. I'm going to raise him up and prepare him for what's to come. And you got to think that she's looking at this boy. She's like, ah, it's my son. It's my boy. And she has to go back to the Lord, go back to that place, go back to that time. She made that vow, putting herself back in Shiloh, pouring out her soul to the Lord and saying, I'll give them back to you. I'll give them back to you. As I've reflected on this text and thought about what's, what's changed, what's, what, where have I grown in my understanding of what this text means to me in the last two and a half years, I'm realizing that the Lord's he's calling up what I've promised him. Right? I thought I was just going to see this ministry grow, see you grow, watch you grow, equip and send, give God the glory. 
And I have. And I will. But what I'm realizing is that I have to give this ministry back to the Lord. And I have to leave. And it's for His glory. I got to remain open handed. Like the mother who gives up her only son, I'm giving away the only ministry I've ever pastored. But here's the most important thing about this text we've studied tonight, and it's not about me. We know someone else in the Bible who gave up his only son. God the Father gave up God the Son for the good of mankind. And that's something you can ask of any text in the Bible. It's this phrase that I actually caught in Song of Solomon this past week, of all books of the Bible. Have you seen him who my soul loves? Ask that of any passage in the Bible, and you will find Jesus somewhere. It's all about him. It's always been about Where is Jesus in this passage? What we see with Hannah giving Samuel to the Lord is a foreshadow of what God the Father does by sending Jesus to this world. Jesus came and died on a cross for you and for me. He rose from the grave for you and for me. To all who would repent of their sins, turn from their sins and believe savingly upon the gospel, will be saved. I pray to the Lord that that will always be the message of the young adults ministry of Bellevue Baptist Church. And I know it will. I trust that the gospel of Jesus Christ will always be prized by you, the young adults of Bellevue.